The following is a pre recorded program. 9.06, Wednesday night. What is it, John? May 15th? John Sauter is our producer. I'm Tom Kearney. I'm here every night, Monday through Friday, with a little bit of live and in real time radio. And we have a couple of very special guests tonight. And uh, I hope I'm making new friends because they, they seem like they're very nice people and they have written a, a book that. Uh, that you might want to have at hand if you go to the North Carolina coast. And, of course, those of us who grew up uh, in eastern North Carolina know that's something you just do. And uh, maybe one day when you've been there for a week and uh, you can go out and look at the local lighthouse. The book is North Carolina Lighthouses. It's the revised and expanded edition, The Stories Behind the Beacons from Cape Fear to Currituck Beach. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, The authors are Cheryl Shelton Roberts and Bruce Roberts. Uh, Cheryl and, and Bruce, are you there? We're here. We're here. Okay, I, I never trust this electronic equipment until it, it, it establishes its connection and so on. Um, talking about lighthouses, and I, I told you the first question I wanted to ask, and I, I want people who are driving in their cars because so many of their listeners to listen up now because they'll enjoy uh, finding out about the lighthouses in North Carolina, and a lot of them have rich histories and uh, in any event, how many, um, I guess I want to say, operating lighthouses are on the North Carolina coast? I have a feeling that there's something like five or six or seven. Is, is that a, a right number for now? Of course, when we look at the history, we'll see that some have come and gone. Well, we, I have to qualify that statement. We've got nine what we call official lighthouses okay. that were built by the old U.S. Lighthouse Service. Um, one built by the Coast Guard. And of those nine, there are six that are official aids to navigation. And, you know, I can name them off if you want. Um, well, why not? Because they're, they're the ones that, they're at work still. Okay. And we'll end up probably talking about the other ones tonight, too. Okay. But. I'll go geographically. I started the northern part of the state, and that's Currituck Beach Lighthouse. Then there's Body Island, Cape Hatteras. Oprah Coke, Cape Lookout, which is near us. Uh, and then farther down is Oak Island. Those six are official, still on the Coast Guard official light list as uh, active aids to navigation. And then you've got Old Baldy, which is an old veteran, uh, but not any longer uh, official aid to navigation, although there is a light in its tower. And then there is the uh, Roanoke River light, which is an original sound light in, now in Edenton, and then Little Price's Creek um, near Southport. Those three um, are not official aids to navigation, but they're still original lighthouses that's still standing. North Carolina has uh, some of the finest and most historic lights in America. When did... Uh when did the first lighthouse, when and where was the first lighthouse that was built on the North Carolina coast? I always like the history of things. And uh, was I'm, I'm thinking it might be somewhere at Wilmington because there was a port there, but that's just a guess on my You're part. Right. Okay, well, good for me. You're right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in fact, the, uh, the first lighthouse in the United States that was built with government funds just as soon as the Constitution had been ratified and we were getting our nation together, uh, was built at Cape Henry. It was the first government building funded, believe it or not, 
was at Cape Henry, and close on its heels was Bald Head Island, Old Baldy as we know it today, but the first one was known as Cape, Cape Fearlight in 1794. Now, we, we will, myself and others will know where some of these places are. Obviously, Cape Fear is an extremely famous, but they've even made movies about Cape, yes. with the title Cape Fear. Now, where is Cape Henry? We, we, maybe the first time through we can... Uh, point out it's sort of where they are. For instance, the Currituck Light that you—I didn't even know about it. I don't know how I missed that, but I—I haven't been much on the upper coast. I think I've been to Knott's Island one time, and mm-hmm. and you've got to go to Currituck Beach uh, Lighthouse. That light station, sometime it is one of the finest restoration projects in America. Um, the uh, Outer Banks Conservation did that job, but Cape Henry is the next light north of Currituck just across the Virginia line. All right. That's, I, had, I sort of suspected that, with, I, I think I must have seen Cape Henry on a map or something sometime, that it was a Virginia site, and so uh, I wasn't really sure. But, uh, okay, there, there we are, and those are the lights. And one of the things that we will want to talk about tonight that people pick out and think find attractive about the lighthouses, uh, who know about them and not, is the... The way they are painted, the way they are, uh, and and the Currituck Lighthouse is not painted. It's uh, in its original brick color, unless I'm mistaken, isn't it? And that is by no mistake. Um, (laughs) After there was reorganization of the old lighthouse establishment as the um, U.S. Lighthouse Service, they called themselves the Lighthouse Board, brought in um, trained engineers from West Point, and Peter C. Haynes. You might know Haynes Point, for instance, in uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter C. Haynes had his hand in um, the building at, he finished up at Cape Hatteras, and then he did Body Island, and then he did Currituck Beach. He came up with a paint scheme of these day marks, he called them, and the most visual pattern is, are the black and white spirals at Cape Hatteras, and then the black and white bands at Body Island, and the black and white checkers. They really weren't called diamonds. Mm-hmm. They were called checkers at Cape Lookout. That's the nearest one to where you are. You, I, we didn't say in the beginning, but you folks are located in Moorhead City, and that's the closest one to where you are, isn't right. it? Right. And then, um, so with those four tall coastal lights, with their days their daytime markers, Currituck Beach could remain its natural brick color, and mariners traveling during the day could tell by these day marks which light they were at because of the pattern. And so with Currituck Beach, it kept its natural brick color. They saw that. They knew where they were. You know, I I was interested in the North Carolina coast from the earliest days, and I remember reading a book called Ocracoke by a man named Carl Gurch when I was a mm-hmm. kid, and uh, it took me longer to get to Ocracoke than I wanted it to, but it just—it was a fascinating account. And then I read some of some of the of the saint of, of coastal historians, David Stick's books, uh, yep. the Graveyard of the Atlantic. I think is the one that I started with, and I remembered, you know, the, the stirring pages, the early pages of that, where the currents from the, the from the north and the south meet, and the world. The, the the whirlwind not the whirlwind but the the water uh, and, and the Gulf Stream the Gulf Stream meets exactly and so on so uh, but I it took me a while to discover uh, their ingenuity in in uh, 
painting the lighthouses different colors. It's part of their charm, I think, but it's obvious the need for it because when you're out there looking at them, they all look the same, you know, because the the, the, the terrain, uh, I That's think. That's right. That's and, right. Yeah, they, they needed some characteristic to distinguish themselves from one from the other during the day. And at uh, night, yes, the go. flash pattern of the light, uh, which was listed in a, a mariner's light list, um, they could tell by the flash pattern that where they were at night. We are on WPTF's Tom Kearney show tonight talking about lighthouses in North Carolina. I think we established that there are probably nine working lighthouses. Uh, there, there's a, as with a lot of things, there's a definitional problem here, and uh, but that's why you need to get yourself a copy of North Carolina Lighthouses, the revised and expanded uh, edition. Published by UNC Press, so that makes it available uh, and easy to get uh, at the usual places, as we are inclined to say, whether it's Amazon or it's your bookstore. And if they don't have it, they can get it. Are you, are you folks touring any? Are you going out and banging the drum to sell books any? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, uh, we'll be out on the coast in, in July and August, and I'm going to try and sign books at various lighthouses. And so that when you go out there this summer, Hopefully you'll, have, you'll be able to get signed copies at any of the lighthouses. Well, we've taken up lately. We, it's interesting. I used to go to, to, to your beach when I was young, and then later, uh, because we had some friends who had a cottage at uh, Topsail, we would go there. And then later, uh, uh, some, the same thing happened at Sunset Beach. But the, the one we would go to from Sunset would be Oak Island, right? Right. That's the closest closest lighthouse to Sunset Beach because it's the the last beach in North Carolina, and uh, if the new bridge hasn't ruined it, it, it will be a nice time to go down there. Uh, yeah. but, Oak Island was one of the last uh, official lighthouses built in America. It in Solomon's Island, and uh, it was the late nineteen fifty. I think nineteen fifty eight is the date I remember. I think it's fifty eight. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I think the the Lighthouse Bureau, or what it, it had various names. I think you described three different stages that it mm -hmm. went through. Uh, but um, it w was it a part of the Treasury Department, or, have it, or was it connected to the military? Well, it, it was a part of the tre Treasury Department, although the military had a connection in the fact that the uh, the West Point was actually an engineering school mm -hmm. uh, when the uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was trying to convince the American public that they had to have a, uh, a military school, they didn't want it because they, uh, at that time, back after the American Revolution, there was a real antipathy against uh, educated officers and military. So uh, 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 Jefferson uh, made West Point basically an engineering school and their major job for uh, decades was to teach engineers to build lighthouses. Oh. Virtually all the American lighthouses built in the last century were built by Army engineers. He got it in under the radar, didn't he? I yeah, think. he did. <laughs> That's why he was the third they were, president. They were a military school. We have to face that. But, of course, like Bruce said, they feared a, a standing army. Oh, yeah, that's only become a big deal after since World War II. I, as an ex-history teacher, I concur completely with what you were saying. And I know that Robert E. Lee, for instance, his, he spent yeah. a lot of time dealing with engineering problems before the Civil War came along. And he did. He, yeah. 
uh, let's say, own drainage problems uh, near us at Fort Macon. Um, but there were several of those, uh, George Meade, um, yes. Daniel Ledbetter. Uh, I could just go on and on. Uh, WHC Whiting, right. a number of those, uh, particularly the class of 1846 that uh, graduated out of West Point right into the Spanish-American the let's say the Mexican-American War is, I Mexican think, the one you're American looking War. for. Thank yeah. you. And then <laughs> right into also the uh, Civil War. I think there is actually a book. Some guy wrote a book that, about the class of 46 and uh, because of, there were so yeah. many people in it that uh, yeah. went on to be on one side or the other. And, and uh, sometimes it's not emphasized that, in, like, for instance, in the Civil War, guys on different sides actually were very familiar with each other because they'd all gone to school together. We need to stop for a moment and take a break, and we can also say again that we are talking with Cheryl Shelton Roberts and Bruce Roberts about their new book, uh, North Carolina Lighthouses. It's actually a revised and expanded edition. If I remember correctly, they did the first edition back in the 1990s, and uh, one of the things we want to ask them is how they fell in love. I think it's fair to say they're in love with lighthouses from talking to them, how they fell in love with them and got, got to the beginning on this. And then maybe we can elicit some stories about the, well, the lighthouses are said to be storied. We'll see if we can find out. We'll do all of this right after this. 924 at Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here. We're talking about lighthouses tonight along the North Carolina coast. Um, the revised and expanded edition of a book with simply that title, North Carolina Lighthouses, authored by Cheryl Shelton Roberts and Bruce Roberts, who have authored a number of books uh, on lighthouses and North Carolina lighthouses. Uh, Bruce, one of the, uh, and Cheryl, one of the most uh, interesting periods, uh, and uh, as an old history teacher, I know this is the case because it it allows us to meet the wonderful Ben Butler along the way, in North Carolina history is the, the period during the American Civil War when one of the first things I think that that uh, was established was the control of the North Carolina coast, and it pretty much stayed that way throughout the whole war, I think. Uh, uh, isn't that the case? Uh, yes, and the, the reason for that is that whoever controlled the lighthouses uh, could turn them on or turn them off. And and the, uh, the Yankees were not familiar with all the uh, things around the Outer Banks, uh, um, the reefs, and so forth. So the lighthouses were very, very necessary for the Union ships. And so the first thing that the Confederates did was turn them off and actually took many of them out and shipped them inland. And some of them were stored at, at the state capitol and, and other places. Yes, the Fresnel lenses. And the Fresnel lenses, of course, were the key uh, to the large lighthouses because that beam could get out uh, uh, 20 feet or even further uh, in, in good weather. And particularly at night, without the lights guiding them, uh, the, the Union captains were very fearful of the rocks and the shoals. So the, uh, they tried everything they knew to uh, put lights back in the towers and get lights established again. And so that was part of the reason the coast was occupied. You mentioned the, the, the lenses. And that is, I think, one of the most interesting things. The lenses and how the, the light was made, and can we, can we talk about that for a few minutes? Because the, the Fresnel lenses, as I, I, I believe are the case of a guy in France sort of came up with the idea, but it's prisms that tend to, 
take the relatively weak light generated by burning oil usually and and magnify it greatly. Am I not right on that? Exactly. And uh, the the it's still, con- it's still considered one of the most revolutionary optics and inventions in the world because the curvature of the glass could reflect and refract uh, light, bending it to focus it at the center of the uh, of the lantern room. And so that focused light was very intense. Tremendous improvement over the old uh, individual gas lamps that had uh, poor uh, bowl-shaped parabolic reflectors behind them, uh, which most of the time they, they should have been burning, let's say, 18 of these lamps. Most of the time, seven or eight, they were lucky if they were burning, and, and even if then, they were uh, fitful and they smoked up the, the, uh, the lantern room. So when they brought in the Fresnel lenses, it was just tremendous change um, and improvement. And of course, with it, the keepers had to learn how to operate the new lamp that they did. The Lighthouse Service stayed on the edge of technology. They always used, tried to use, starting at around 1852 forward, the most advanced um, technology. For instance, the, the Statue of Liberty, one of the first things electrified uh, in 1889. Okay, now this leads me to the question. I, I believe, if I'm right, that, say, in the 1850s, the light was generated by burning whale oil, and then at some place, time, I'll bet after the Civil War, it became kerosene. 1870s, yeah. whale oil became um, uh, too expensive. And and then when when were the lighthouses electrified, so to speak, in general? And, and the other question is that, that we've got to answer t- tonight for my benefit is, uh, it looks like to me from looking at the different statistics that that most of them could be seen, say, 10 to 12, 13 miles distance off the coast. Does that sound right to you? Well, uh, the order of Fresnel lenses um, run used here in the United States mainly were orders 1 through 6, uh, the first order being the largest, and those were used as a tall coastal light. So um, they were, um, and, and I was what I was focusing on, actually, Tom, mm-hmm. the, okay. the about electrifying these lights. Right. That's a little bit difficult. Because these lights were remote, most of these lights uh, did not get electrified until the 20s and 30s. And Cape Hatteras actually was never officially electrified until after, after it was reopened in 1950 when the park took over. And and this was because they were so remote and, and, yes. and they had to use generators, in fact, and so on. And one of the things we want to talk about during the second half of the program, and we're coming up on our half-hour news broadcast, is the people that, uh, well, the keepers of, of the of the lights and so on, and, and how they got, well, how they lived and where the water came from and where the electricity came from, if they, in fact, had that. We need to pause now for just a moment to check the news around the world and locally here on News Radio 680 WPTF. The following is a pre-recorded program. News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here on a Wednesday night. Tomorrow night, we're going to have a nostalgia night. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about Doris Day and uh, Tim Conway and people like that and people who've been around all of our lives and all of a sudden we realize that they are gone. And next week sometime, 
Dr. Funkhauser is going to come and we're going to do a uh, necrology. But tonight we're talking about lighthouses, one of the fascinating bits of of the charm of the coast of North Carolina. And and it is different from every other state's coast, I think. Of course, I'm a professional North Carolinian, so you can't really trust me on that subject. Uh, North Carolina Lighthouses, the revised and expanded edition, you'll love it. Uh, by Cheryl Shelton Roberts and Bruce Roberts. Um, we were talking about, the, if we can stop, go back for just a minute, we were talking about the, the lights that the, the, the lighthouses cast. And uh, I read the section about how the, the uh, lighthouse keepers, Cheryl and, and Bruce, had to sort of go through a process of firing up the, the you, you had to be reasonably intelligent to be a lighthouse keeper, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, you had to be a jack of all trades, that's for sure. And, and there were uh, instruction manuals that came with uh, uh, many of these pieces of equipment. They, they operated, uh, not North Carolina, no, no fog signals, but they certainly had to take a hammer and hit a fog bell, <laughs> <laughs> which must have been deafening. And they had to, yes, you're talking about the, uh, the warming lamp and the incandescent oil vapor lamp. Yeah, but the hardest part was you had to paint the lighthouse. Can you imagine those keepers actually did paint uh, uh, the Body Island Lighthouse from top to bottom? That was part of their job, I guess, every couple of years. And I, and, and I can imagine it was, well, one of the descriptions you, you gave of a, a lighthouse keeper's family, everybody, if, if anything was out of place, it had to be fixed. If a piece of chip paint came off, they had to repaint it and so on. And... Uh, if you were out there and you were strapped to a chair or something and you were painting it and you fell, there wasn't going to be much help coming your way. That, that was, uh, I guess, part of being in such a lonely situation. Yes. And if, if you got hurt, it was a long way to, uh, to a doctor. That's true. Well, one of the things that has fascinated me, I read a, a lot about the, the Wright brothers and, and so on and about the North Carolina coast, is we, it's so easy to go across the various bridges now uh, and, and go up and down the coast of North Carolina uh, for uh, for a time, I guess, up until after World War II, uh, you, if you got out there, you had to hire a private boat. And I understand that one of the problems the Wright brothers had was just getting there. Yes, because the, there were no roads, uh, uh, and you got there by boat usually. And you had to hire a boat, and, uh, and one of the ones that they hired one time was about to fall apart. But there is a lighthouse pretty close to where their uh, their their memorial is in, in Kill Devil Hills, I guess is what I should say, or Kitty Hawk, uh, where the where the plane took off. Uh. Yeah, the beacon lights. That was an intermediate uh, landing trip, and um, something that most people don't realize is that um, when um, when airliners when when airplanes were being used, and and initially it was for airmail, um, these pilots had nothing to go by. They would use telephone pole if they could, um, and in some areas they established these cement markers with arrows pointed on it, mm-hmm. and later they took uh, Fresnel lenses and put them onto gas-powered pedestals, uh, and they shone a, a, a beam straight up into the air, and then eventually they did um, build some of the major markers, which Wright Brothers was one of them, and the lighthouse service was in charge of doing the lighting. They did all that. They had an airway division 
in the U.S. Lighthouse Service. I don't think we realize how difficult it was to get around uh, uh, in those days. And I've had a lot of private pilots tell me that our that WPTF's radio beacon was a way they found their way back to Raleigh. Oh, undoubtedly. <laughs> and, of course, we know that the, the planes that bombed Pearl Harbor got there by following a radio signal. And, right. And uh, they were listening to KHQ or something in, in Honolulu. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, these trips... Uh, for instance, let's go back to Cape Hatteras. Okay. And the year is about um, 1930. And the keeper is Unica Sinet. And he had to travel to Norfolk to pick up the district inspector to come and inspect the station and, you know, make sure that it's in good working order. And it was a three-day trip. So just before he left, he was... Uh, going out of the keeper's course, he took a look at his lighthouse, and he sees his son, Ranny, Jeanette, and a friend painting something. Is, is this the, when they painted it with tar? Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> they painted the base. They thought that, that they were doing a wonderful. They were very proud. They were doing this wonderful thing. Well, Keeper Jeanette was not of the same thinking. Um, <laughs> he could lose his job for that. And he told Randy, he said, uh, I don't have time to take care of this right now, but you get that cleaned up, and you will find out what's going to happen to you when I get back. So poor Randy had to wait three days until his father got back. And uh, he said, uh, you know, after the inspection, um, uh, this was Inspector King at that time, who eventually became commissioner of the Lighthouse Service, um, his father was coming out of the keeper's course with his shaving strap in his hand. Ooh. And Randy said he knew that his father was not going to shave his face. <laughs> this is but, what you sharpened your razor on. My grandfather called it a strop, is what he called it, but right. I know what you're talking about. He threatened me with it. He never hit me with it, but he threatened me. So I know what you're talking about. Would you folks mind taking a call or two? Oh, not all. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, I can't get my computer to work, but that doesn't mean I can't push this button and say, who are we talking to? Hello? John, who is on line two? William? Uh, yes, sir. Do you have a question for Mr. and Mrs. Yes, Roberts? Uh, uh, what I was wondering is during World War II, you know, had the threat of U-boats off the coast. What, uh, how did that affect the lighthouses? During World War II, most of the lights were darkened. Uh, you know, people even driving on the island had to put, just like they did in, in any other areas, they had to put paper and just have a little slit uh, of light coming out. And so and they only turned the lights on at specific times for specific reasons. Um, they didn't want the U-boats using them um, uh, as a background light that would shine and show where our allied uh, ships were. And, and they did. They, they, they did it uh, several times, and then that's when the, the lights had to be done. Thank you, William. Thanks for the call. We've got another caller we need to take on. Uh, I can remember uh, Cheryl reading that, uh, that a lot of uh, the ships were sunk off the coast of Florida because they had so many Cities with bright lights and everything that so uh, wet up, yeah. and the shadow of the the the, the silhouette of the ships right. 
gave it gave it away and uh, tremendous it only lasted the war on, off the coast i understand it about six or eight months but uh, it, a tremendous amount of shipping was was sunk uh, off the north carolina coast more more ships than were sunk at pearl harbor Ooh, okay. and the marches of 1942 was one of the worst times uh, those u-boats were deadly and um, took, a, 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 of course, a big toll. In fact, we almost lost the war here on the East Coast because we didn't have enough protection for the Allied shipping, and they were aiming for the oil tankers predominantly. And, and they were coming around from, from the, uh, the Gulf Coast, so to speak. Exactly, uh, right. following the Gulf Stream and going to Europe to take precious oil uh, for our uh. army. We are talking, uh, always like to keep identifying, so if somebody uh, calls in, they will know who we're talking to. The book is North Carolina Lighthouses. It's uh, uh, the stories behind the beacons that uh, uh, guarded our coast uh, from Cape Fear to Currituck. And I don't mean guarded in the sense that they had guns, but rather uh, presented a, a, a navigational aids to, to uh, ship shipping and ships. Uh, we have another caller. Good evening. Who is this? Uh, thank you. John out here, mobile in Hundell. Here to work tonight. And uh, yeah, your conversation on navigation there caught my interest because uh, the, the, the Nazi submarines that were sinking tankers off the coast uh, had several effects during the war, uh, not the least of which is uh, the current pipeline system in the United States was built specifically because of a loss of tankers off the and uh, they, they figured there's no way they could sail a submarine up to Mississippi and sink a pipeline. So that's where they started putting those in. But uh, the navigation beacons were verified by using um, what they call medium wave AM broadcast radios and by taking uh, pics on, uh, on the AM radio stations in, uh, say, Wilmington and again uh, up the coast. They can, the submarines and even you. If you have a map, you can fix your location within uh, six feet at 200 miles with doing that and verify that that's the light you're looking at. Uh, well, that's pretty much what we were saying a little bit earlier, but you're right. And, in fact, that's there was something uh, when when all of us were younger called Conrad, and the reason it yes. was created was— and 1240. Right, and they they would broadcast for short periods from different frequencies, so from from different locations on the same frequency. So it would simply confuse somebody trying to mm-hmm. trying to follow it in. Well, thank you for the call, and uh, we are we'll go back to the subject at hand here. In fact, we might take a little break right now. Cheryl and Bruce, the worst thing about this program is once we just get hot, and it's not really worse, but time flies is what happens. And we've, we've got one more segment here. So think about a good story or something that you think is uh, illustrative of what, how you feel about the lighthouses on the coast. And we'll come back to that right after this. 949 News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here. If we were climbing a lighthouse in this program, in this uh, radio hour tonight on Wednesday night, we would be almost to the top. And I'm sure we would be nearly exhausted if we didn't count the steps to the top of the Hatteras Lighthouse, which I think is about 200 feet. But in any event, we've got the people who know about that. We're not going to talk about that because we've got other more important business. But uh, uh, the authors of North Carolina Lighthouses, Cheryl Shelton Roberts and Bruce Roberts are our guests tonight. And uh, 
I sort of put out the line for a good story, and then I know, Cheryl, you have some things that you want to mention about anniversaries. Ah, this is a very important year. This is the, uh, it marks the 20th year of the successful relocation project of moving to Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. And there's going to be a, a big celebration on July 1st at the light station. Eight. National Park Service is, is heading it up, but uh, our Bruce's and my nonprofit, the Outer Banks Lighthouse Society, are um, going to be participating in the planning for the event. Do you do, do you folks there have a website? Oh, yes, we do. Tell us it's, what it is so we it's can... Out, it's just OuterBankLighthouseSociety.org or OBLHS.org. Either way, it'll get you there. Okay, well, that's the way our, our listeners can find out more about what, what you <laughs> folks are up to. And you, I think you said there was a 25th anniversary. That The story of moving the, the lighthouse is such a big, big story. I, yeah. Uh, and and the, the effort to get it done and the discussions about whether it should be done or not, uh, all of that is is fascinating and, and got us a lot of national attention, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we, well, we feel that that relocation is perhaps the grandest example of recognizing the historic value of lighthouses and the worthiness of restoring them. And it happened. To, it happened to the, I guess, the queen of the lighthouses. The you know the the, the tallest one and the one that was so recognizable to a lot of people because of the spiral painting on it. And uh, uh, somebody... I, I, I think worldwide it is, of all of our great and beautiful lighthouses, it, it is the most recognized. Right, right. People that don't know anything else about North Carolina know about that. And the 25th anniversary was... For our for the Outer Banks Lighthouse Society. Okay, all right. And... Uh, you said that you were. Um, we were talking off the air. You mentioned something about a family that lived at one of the lighthouses, and uh, uh, or, or whatever your choice is at this particular point. Oh, I, one, I have done three oral history books. One is was on a, uh, with all all of these or with Keeper's descendants, the children that were raised at the light stations, and you know families worked together at these light stations. But you can't just say family life. At one was the same across the board. It wasn't. It depended on uh, the lighthouse. For instance, at Cape Look, uh, me, at Cape Hatteras, um, there were three keepers at one time, and all of their children. And then they had life-saving stations on either side within a few miles, and all of their kids. Um, and many of them were uh, even related to one another. So that was not considered a lonely um, position or post or Body Island was very different. Body Island had no bridges to it, there were uh, no roads, um, and it was not nearly as well known. And there was only one keeper's house for up to three keepers. It was a very small house. And and that was, uh, they, they couldn't have their family there with them. But the Austin, this is um, Joy and Austin Singer during the late 1920s into the early 1930s, did have his two children with him there, but not his wife. His wife was in a uh, tuberculosis sanatorium. So those young kids, and I'm, we're talking young, maybe uh, three and eight years old, uh, Verna was the, excuse me, Marilyn was the girl, and um, Vernon Austin Jr., uh, Julian Austin Jr. was there. And they had to work. They had to keep the wood bin filled. 
They had to cook. They had to help clean. And those young kids were there without their mother for several years. And the day that she came back is probably the most, uh, the greatest memory in all three of the children. The youngest, Verna, did later join them. And a very, a very touching story. They have good memories of, of living there. And they say that when they, when they think of home, they think of Bonnie Island. Uh, it would be interesting to know, and, and I know you probably do know, uh, we don't have time for it tonight, but what happened to these people? I always want to know what happened to them in their lives because they had such an unusual upbringing. And I, I was thinking when you were talking about the first group, well, at least somebody, if they were teenagers, they might be able to get a date on Friday night because there might be enough people around. But uh, uh, Papa Austin, I believe, would be the, the father of these children. And I'm sure he was glad when his missus came home, too. Uh, yes, yes. And, and, and the other keeper, the uh, the principal keeper there was um, Vernon Gaskell, and uh, he had three children as well. And Dorothy was the older daughter. And Dorothy, uh, I asked Dorothy, I said, "How did you like it?" They would go out during the summer, you know, and visit and stay with their dad. And this was at a time when the light had been automated, and so only one keeper had to stay full time on watch. So while one keeper went to the mainland wherever they usually want these area. Um, the other keeper stayed with his family. And I asked, I said, Dorothy, what did you think about uh, life out there at Body Island? She said, well, let me put it this way. When I was bad and my parents wanted to punish me, they would send me there for a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we have just about used up our time, but I want to have, I think, a uh, a recommendation for people to get your book. Uh, the, the subtitle is The Stories Behind the Beacons from Cape Fear to Currituck Beach, and you've just uh, gave, given us a taste of the stories. This book is, uh, UNC Press produced this, and it's wonderfully organized, I think. And the little, I call them sidebar, the little boxes that have all the stats about the uh, the who runs them, what property. Most of them are located on National Park property, as a matter of fact, and are, in fact, run by the U.S. Coast Guard. But there are some differences there. Uh, if you want to know about the lighthouses and their current situation, about the Fresnel lenses, uh, about the history of the lighthouses and uh, the, of the keepers, this is a book that will keep you occupied for many hours and keep you out of trouble. So Cheryl and, uh, and uh, Bruce, thanks so much for being on with us tonight, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners. Don't go anywhere.